Welcome to Happened Here. People, places, and the stories they tell. I'm Kate Reed, host of this episode, Heaven, Hell, and Subterranean Homesick Blues. We've got quite the range for you today. We've got a story about Covent Garden when it actually was a Covent Garden. That's your little bit of heaven. Then we've got a man who drugged himself to the gates of hell. And then, to counter those extremes, a little something about a pop meister creating an anthem for the counterculture, and in doing so, creating a whole new art format. Without further ado, let's begin. The area, bounded by a wall along Longacre to the north, up St Martin's Lane in the west, and down Drury Lane in the east. Its southern boundary is the gardens and houses that were built on the north side of the Strand. Gardening for God, written by Sarah Fleming, performed by Kate Reed. Is Covent Garden a corruption of Convent Garden? Was it once a garden tended by nuns? Today, we think of convents as being holy houses for nuns, but the word only began to be used exclusively for women in 18th century English. Convent came from the old French word, covent, meaning coming together, a community, in other words. It was monks, not nuns, who tended Covent Garden. Sometime in the mid-1400s, imagine a brother Samson looks down at the neat mound of turned earth below which brother Peter has just been buried. He looks up at the pear and chestnut trees flanking the grave and then along the rows of fruit and nut trees that form the cemetery orchard here in the northeast corner of the Covent Garden. Covent Garden has belonged to the Benedictine Abbey of Westminster since the early 13th century. Situated a good mile north of the Abbey itself, it's the perfect place to bury the dead. Out of sight. It's a big plot, the perfect place to grow commercial crops too. Brother Peter oversaw the cultivation of Covent Garden for over 30 years before his death, aged 72. Following his death, Samson has been told by the abbot that the will of God is for him to take responsibility for Covent Garden now. Brother Samson does not see this as a promotion. He has had to leave his beloved physic herb garden to plant more prosaic crops in the Covent Garden. By the will of God. Samson knows the monastery must be self-sufficient. Growing food is important, and manual labour prevents idleness. But he does wish he were back in the physic garden, within the abbey precinct, in the quiet areas reserved exclusively for the monks. The abbey gardens are enclosed within cloisters or walls, with fountains and places to sit and contemplate God. Most of the plants he tended there have practical purposes, yes, but they are grown for beauty too. Covent Garden, on the other hand, is much more utilitarian, with the responsibility for producing fruits and vegetables, not only for the abbey kitchen, but for the public too, 
a means of bringing in money. And furthermore, the size of the plot demands that the Abbey employ laymen. Although some brothers like the interaction with the public, Samson prefers the rhythms and quiet of the monastery. In Covent Garden, he's supervising the growing of mullein, with its very tall, upright stalk, which is soaked in tallow for candles. The Abbey uses a lot of candles. Getting laymen to weed the cabbages, pick off slugs, others to harvest sweet-scented bed straw to strew on the church floor. Now he has to worry about germinating his parsnips, onion fly, apple canker. In the herb garden, he tended lavender and thyme, sage and fennel for cooking. But in case the abbot allows him back one day, he's determined to remember that juniper is a diuretic and good for deworming sheep, that rue wards off the plague, that fennel seeds stave off hunger when fasting. Meanwhile, he moves through the orchard, checking the health of the trees, touching the trunks with a growing affection that surprises him, and also aware that Peter and the other decomposing bodies will lead to bumper harvests come the autumn. God bless them. From the love of God to a writer who took it upon himself to experiment repeatedly with what we would now categorise as Class A drugs, freely available over-the-counter in the early 19th century, experiments that took him to hell and back. For York Place and Around Covent Garden, Tales of the Odious Opium Eater, written by Zach Ghazi Torbati, performed by Stephen Fry. The great romantic poet William Wordsworth once said that Thomas de Quincey was one of the most worthless of mankind. Maybe he was right. De Quincey stumbles out of the building. He staggers off aimlessly to wander Covent Garden and Soho. Maybe he'll meet up with shady characters, streetwalkers, pickpockets, his friends. When he wasn't trolling the streets, essayist de Quincey wrote about politics, economics, philosophy, history, you name it. But he is best known for his drug memoir, Confessions of an English Opium Eater, published in 1821. The account details de Quincey's experiences while addicted to opium, or laudanum, to be precise. Laudanum was made by dissolving opium in alcohol so you could easily eat droplets of it. Needless to say, we wouldn't recommend it. De Quincey stated that he would have not less than 8,000 drops daily, sometimes as much as 12. That's a heck of a lot. Confessions brought de Quincey overnight fame, but the cost was a lifelong addiction to opium. Back then, we didn't grasp the danger of the narcotic. It was regularly prescribed for all types of ailments, for hiccups or menstrual cramps. Laudanum was the paracetamol of the time. 
excruciating pains of the head and face, first led De Quincey to take laudanum in 1804, beginning his toxic relationship with the dread agent of unimaginable pleasure and pain. On opium, he experienced what he called fantastic imagery. He walked through ancient Babylon. He talked to his dead sister. The real and imaginary became indistinguishable. I seemed every night to descend, not metaphorically, but literally to descend into chasms and sunless abysses, depths below depths. His was the first drug memoir inspiring others. His writing style influenced many, including Charles Dickens, Oscar Wilde, and Vladimir Nabokov. As a person, he was somewhat less esteemed. His politics weren't nice. A supporter of slavery, de Quincey believed British imperial rule was natural and just, and described other cultures as savage or brutal. He fetishized the working poor and despised socialism. All in all, he seems to have been a privileged creep with a sense of entitlement and a disregard for those in need, including his family. Known for his wandering eye, de Quincey showed little compassion, even when his own son died. The list of de Quincey's shortcomings seemed to be as long as his memoir, but his relationship with the fellow writer Wordsworth was especially wacky. Having been an admirer since childhood, de Quincey ingratiated himself into Wordsworth's family. A strange and sycophantic relationship developed. When Wordsworth's daughter, Kate, tragically died at the age of three, de Quincey lamented the loss of her dear body and dear lips and slept outside on her grave for more than two months. Back at Four York Place, you might catch a glimpse of de Quincey's childlike body slithering home at dawn. His inability to sleep was one of the many side effects of opium. One biographer simply says, I love his writing, but he was a loathsome human being. So, whilst his writing may be celebrated, it is difficult to admire the writer. Can you do one without the other? We'll leave that decision to you. Well, let's lighten the mood. An alleyway a stone's throw from the Savoy, London's legendary five-star hotel on the Strand. The Anthem of the Counterculture, written by James Rampton, performed by Robbie Stamp. On 8th of May, 1965, the great American musician Bob Dylan had a day off from his British tour and was staying at the Savoy Hotel on the Strand. A relentless and restless creative spirit, what did he decide to do with that day off? Invent a new art form, of course. On this day, he just happened to dream up the concept of the music video in the unlikely setting of a dark, grimy back alley in London. He was being followed around the UK by the celebrated filmmaker D.A. Pennebaker, who was shooting 
Don't Look Back, the seminal documentary of Dylan's British tour. Every leading artist needs an entourage, and Dylan's at that time included the brilliant musicians Joan Baez, Donovan and Bob Neuwirth, as well as the influential beat poet Allen Ginsberg. It was a beatnik brains trust. This extraordinarily gifted group huddled together around the bed in Dylan's room at the Savoy on the evening of 7th May and scribbled lyrics from his subterranean homesick blues on big pieces of card. The next morning, Pennebaker filmed a young Dylan standing in the narrow lane known as the Savoy Steps. Ginsberg and Neuwirth lurked in the back of the shot, chatting, smoking, and for no discernible reason, carrying shepherd's crooks. Struggling slightly with the thick bundle of cards bearing the lyrics, clearly written in different hands and styles, Dylan discarded them one by one in time to the music. Clad in scaffolding and littered with bags of cement and random piles of rubble and logs, the grungy, nondescript alleyway behind the renowned hotel acted as a clever counterpoint to the sublime music. To add to the dissonant, jagged feel of the film, some of the signs featured deliberate misspellings and were purposefully tossed away slightly off the beat. Delivered in Dylan's trademark scat, stream-of-consciousness style, subterranean homesick blues was an urgent warning about government corruption and police brutality. Better stay away from those that carry around a fire hose. It also tapped into the sense of despair that young people in the 1960s felt about a future dictated by the man. 20 years of schooling and they put you on the day shift. Subterranean homesick blues burst into the public consciousness like an anti-establishment firework. At the height of the hippie Give Peace a Chance revolution, it instantly became the anthem of the counterculture. In just two minutes and 18 seconds, Dylan transformed the way we listened to and looked at music. Not a bad morning's work. The song, which has been covered by artists as diverse as Red Hot Chili Peppers and Glen Campbell, has inspired endless homages, including a famous, possibly creepy, placard-wielding scene in Richard Curtis's rom-com Love Actually. Uh, perhaps best not to dwell on that one. So a video shot on the hoof on a dingy day in a dingy back alley has become an all-time classic, as even John Lennon confirmed. When he was producing a cover of the song for Harry Nilsson's 1974 album Pussycat, Lennon revealed he found subterranean homesick blues so captivating that it makes me wonder how I could ever compete. Well, no one's going to argue with the musical taste of a Beatle, are they? Pop videos eat your heart out. Hi, Robbie Stamp here. I performed the Bob Dylan story, and I apologise for that slightly dodgy Liverpudlian accent, maybe not one of Happened Here's finest performances. But if you'd like to find out more about the stories, delve deeper, do come and visit us at happenedhere.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share, tell your friends, and leave us a kind review and a rating on your podcast platform of choice. But for now, everybody involved in Happened Here, the writers, the hosts, the performers, Thanks you for listening. Do come again. We've got lots more stories to tell.